Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 134, All According to Plan. We have finally arrived to where the Great Depression struck most critically in Europe, and yep, it's Germany. You can count this as the start of the second miniseries of this season, because the experience of this nation during the Depression is far more complicated than simply weathering bad economic conditions or changes to the standing political system. No, the crisis in this case would do away with the existing state entirely and usher in what was, oddly enough, the closest thing to a revolution you might find during the Depression. Because especially among the big players, their existing systems of government carried on fundamentally the same. Oh sure, there was panic and emergency measures, but the nature of each nation remained the same. Not Germany, though. Oh no, the crisis started in 1929, would unleash forces that would crush the unloved Weimar Republic into the ground and pave the way for a regime unlike the world had ever seen. Yeah, that would be the Nazis. And you're probably already vaguely aware about what happened after that. Democracy would be dismantled, and a new order bent on conquest would assume command of all of Germany's resources. Because something that defenders of liberal democracies have trouble grasping is that their preferred mode of government is only one among many, and if it doesn't deliver a stable, prosperous life, or rather it fails to prevent constant chaos and misery, then at a certain point the people living under it will discard the institution, and that this process happens faster when the people in question never have had a happy experience under that democracy. And while the Republic was doomed, that didn't mean that a group such as the Nazis were a sure thing to assume power. No, that disaster came from bad decisions on the part of both the German people and its established leaders, and presents a winding road littered with the most cutthroat types of politics imaginable, before giving way to a new status quo where politics were replaced entirely by the will of Adolf Hitler and his followers. Except we aren't quite getting to the Nazis today. Sorry about that, that'll be for next week, and then a lot of weeks thereafter. But the Nazis weren't in power when the Depression got underway. In fact, they were still badly marginalized, operating on the fringes of the ultra-right. No, the first responders to the Great Depression would be the status quo German elites. As of the end of 1929, the sitting government of Germany was operating under a coalition led by Hermann Müller and his SPD which, you'll remember, are the Social Democrats, despised by both the establishment politicians for being even light socialists, and also by the Communists, aka the KPD, because of their crushing of the revolution back in 1919 and their collaboration with the bourgeois state that the SPD had shepherded into existence afterwards. But they were still the most popular party in Germany, as they had the history and the connections to the working class. That support wasn't electorally overwhelming, forcing them to govern with allies who would rather not have been allies. Anyway, as we'll see, that government was not long for the world. Because then there were the conservatives, who were scattered across numerous parties ranging from the traditional right wing to the ultra-nationalists and fascists. Keep in mind, especially as the 30s got underway, the Nazis weren't the sole ultra-right party, but a component of a broader and more diffuse movement. Their quasi-unifying figure was President Paul von Hindenburg, the ex-field marshal and the grand old man of Deutschland. 
These guys saw the depression and the collapse of society as an opportunity to finally get rid of the Weimar Republic and implement an authoritarian regime, which Hindenburg was all in favor of. He wasn't huge on democracy having come from the Imperial Army, and he'd be at the center of any future dictatorship. The thing was, these guys weren't in agreement about what the dictatorship would look like. Some favored the traditional upper class, the aristocrats and businessmen, to take the lead. Others favored pulling leaders from the army. There wasn't an agreement or a consensus, and Hindenburg probably assumed that, however it shook out, he'd be fine. The important thing was that notions of democracy were to be removed. That was a guarantee. This is going to be an ongoing story I'll be expanding on over the course of several episodes, so just keep that broad idea or objective in mind. As it turned out, the Nazis didn't so much grab power as they did stroll through an open door and pick it up after the hard work had already been done. Just to make sure I don't get ahead of myself, I should probably get going with the actual depression, the thing that really allowed all this to happen. To provide a little recap to set the table, Germany's economic position leading up to the end of the 20s was already precarious. Unemployment was high, a result of core industries rationalizing their production methods, focusing more on automation to make goods quicker and cheaper, which in turn meant that fewer workers were needed. And while the economy had certainly grown, it had not taken off enough to absorb the fresh excess of labor. And the underpinning of that growth was itself in foreign loans, dumping large amounts of money into the economy. The problem that was run into was that much of that money was not invested into sectors that saw a return. Much of it went to public spending when it should have gone towards modernizing the nation's infrastructure and industries. It's all well and good when the government overspends its own money, that could be a good thing, through inventive fiscal policy. It's quite another when you're relying on foreign loans for your deficit spending. Wall Street, the source of so much of the money, realized after a few years they weren't getting a big return on the money they were sending in, as the Germans simply took out more loans to pay on their old ones. By 1929, long-term loans were no longer being handed out like candy, only short-term ones that had to be paid back quickly. This decoupling was actually encouraged by the Mueller government, who in 1928 removed the exemptions on taxing foreign creditors in an effort to slow down the excessive debt being accumulated in both the public and private sectors. Creditors took the hint and dialed back their offerings, which quickly panicked the government to rescind the decision as a liquidity crisis shortly ensued, but the damage had been done. The stimulus party was over, and 1928 saw a decline in outputs across the board. The resulting spike in unemployment sped up budget shortfalls at every level of government, shortfalls that were already hurting by the disappearance of foreign capital. By 1929, major municipal governments, including Berlin, were on the brink of bankruptcy. And as deficits increased, interest rates were correspondingly raised as well in order to try and stem the flood of debt. Which worked, but made loans all the more expensive, right at a time when additional liquidity was badly necessary. To keep going, local governments had to rely on expensive debt that would have to be repaid in a prompt manner. Many saw the writing on the wall and knew a reckoning would be coming soon. They also probably didn't expect Wall Street to explode the way it did, nor the collapse of the U.S. banking system in the aftermath. Not only was the immediate damage done to Germany's de facto patron bad news for everyone, it signaled a death knell of the internationalism that had dominated the back half of the 20s. 
The wrangling over the Young Plan, the final World War I reparations agreement, had soured the German people on cooperation, even in the face of, or maybe because of, declining economic conditions. It was obvious to everyone that Germany was only limping along on loans, but the Entente and the U.S. still demanded payments to start back up on schedule. The German people came to believe that the victors of the last war would stop at nothing to rob the nation blind and leave it impoverished and dependent on the kindness of others. While the plan was agreed to by the Mueller government and ratified by the Reichstag, the people lost their final shred of confidence in the system. It was also political suicide for Chancellor Mueller. The agreement meant that real money and goods would have to be sent abroad, which meant that spending would also have to be slashed back at home. Now that the plan had been approved, the nation's finances would be the next political battlefield. And that's where the coalition under Mueller no longer made sense. It was a grand coalition, with most major political parties represented. Its purpose, via the guiding hand of the recently deceased Gustav Stressman, had been to hash out a final reparations agreement so as to clearly set how the nation would move forward. This had been done, and now the ideological adversaries turned on each other. The SPD wanted to increase taxes and spending to accommodate the plan to minimize how it would affect social spending. The conservatives, which included their allies among the business class, wanted to take the opposite approach and slash government spending to address that burden. In effect, reversing the welfare and workplace reforms the SPD had implemented at the start of the Republic once and for all. In fact, it was that single-minded objective that drove the business class to support basically anybody who they thought could bring the working class to heel, regardless what their overall platform might have promised. Oh, and the establishment wanted to chuck aside the SPD in general. They couldn't abide dirtying their hands working alongside socialists any longer. One of the central figures to the coming years of political conflict came from the army. This might sound odd because German army men weren't very good politics. Oh, they were reactionary as a rule, and I, I, do, the, I do mean that genuinely. In an army limited to 100,000 men, everybody was screened for their political leanings. If you weren't hard right enough, you really didn't have a place in the army. That was standing protocol going back to the founding of the Reichswehr under Hans von Siecht, who usually gets a pass in popular history books as a dignified officer who kept the army above politics, but in reality was a nationalist who simply didn't feel the need to defend the democracy he operated under, a mindset his successors would carry on. They were openly supported in that by their commander-in-chief, President Hindenburg, who himself treated his office less as a public service and more as a military posting. They weren't, though, the best-equipped guys for skullduggery and backroom deals outside their own little private hierarchy, except for one among their ranks, a man named General Kurt von Schleicher. A rarity among German officers, he reveled in political subterfuge. He was personally outgoing, had a sarcastic sense of humor, and enjoyed stepping out into the nightlife of Berlin, all traits that marked him out from his fellows. He also had a self-destructive tendency to take out other men's wives on dates, something he didn't stop doing even after he got married in 1931. He was a gifted liar and schemer, but he had a knack for making powerful enemies rather than he did friends. He was a protege of General Wilhelm Groner, the man who had replaced Ludendorff at the end of World War I and had shepherded the army back to the Reich, as well as the man who had made an alliance with the SPD to crush the 1918-19 revolution. While Groner was replaced by Hans von Siecht as commander of the army, on account of being spurned by his fellow officers 
disapproving of his working with the SPD in any capacity, Schleicher's own advancement went unimpeded. He was a figure in coordinating the Black Reichswehr, that underground network of paramilitaries that would act as Germany's second army in the event of war. And when the army had to work with civilian authorities, Schleicher's diplomatic touch was employed, which meant he had a far larger set of social circles and influential contacts than your average general. It also didn't hurt that he had served in the same regiment before World War I as Hindenburg's son, Oscar, where the two became friends. Being a family friend of the president was definitely a plus. When Siecht invited the ex-Kaiser's son, the crown prince, to observe military maneuvers, it was Schleicher who leaked the news to the press. The presence of a royal among the military was expressly forbidden, and was a rare occasion when the civilian government summoned the wherewithal to interfere with the army. Siecht was replaced with a, by a man named Wilhelm Heya, someone who doesn't matter at all, because while Schleicher wasn't put directly in charge of the army, he was the most influential man in uniform. And this was happening right around when his mentor, Groner, was himself getting back into the spotlight as Minister of Defense for the Mueller government. Both men hated the socialists, although both were pragmatic enough to work with them up to that point. With conditions worsening, though, they saw an opportunity to dissolve the Republic. It already looked like a given that the Mueller government would fall by the start of 1930. It was further undermined by Schleicher conniving to set up a new configuration in the Reichstag that jettisoned the SPD. He was aided in this on the economic side by the head of the Reichsbank, Hjalmar Schacht. This is also a name you should keep in mind. He's going to be the economic guru of Nazi Germany through most of the 30s. Schacht was initially a supporter of Stressman's internationalism, but the diplomatic back and forth over the Young Plan finally broke him and his nationalist instincts turned him against Mueller. He started loudly making noises that if Germany was to cooperate with the international order, then it would have to abandon the long-standing nationalist goal of revising the eastern borders, something those on the right found unacceptable. Schacht actually used his contacts in Wall Street to sabotage a loan for the national government, and in December 1929 published a scathing attack on the Young Plan and the nation's economic prospects in general. While he resigned early in the following year, he didn't leave the national stage and threw in with the conservatives and soon drifted over to the Nazis as the premier economic pundit of the right. At the end of March 1930, less than a month after the passage of the Young Plan, Mueller finally threw in the towel and resigned as chancellor, being unable to form a new government. This is where Schleicher, Groner, and Oscar Hindenburg's influence started to really show. The clique had been nudging President Hindenburg for years that what Germany really needed was an authoritarian state. And their case was that such a state would be totally legal under the existing constitution. A long time ago, when describing the formation of the Weimar Republic, I described the position of president as a lot like that of the Kaiser. Hindenburg could appoint chancellors at will, he could dissolve the Reichstag, and he could issue laws by decree. The main check was that if the Reichstag rejected Hindenburg's decrees, then that body would dissolve and trigger mandatory elections within two months. Schleicher pointed out that there was nothing illegal about perpetually dissolving the Reichstag and governing without it during the two-month grace period. Hindenburg had been hesitant to use those powers so brazenly, but by 1930 had lost confidence in parliamentary politics and wished for a government that would take the fight to the nation's Marxists. Which, just a side note, that was the bugbear of the right, even more so than, say, an economic catastrophe. 
When the Mueller government fell, Hindenburg stepped in and directly appointed a man named Heinrich Brüning as chancellor. No elections, no wrangling in the Reichstag. Hindenburg pointed, said, you, and then there was a government. Brüning himself was an uncharismatic but respected figure. Well, except among the far right and left, which hated him in equal measure with both wings relishing and tormenting him at every turn. He was hardworking, competent, at least projected a sense of authority, and was regarded as an economic expert. Which, hey, probably not a bad thing given the circumstances. Except Bruning's priorities were not economic, they were political. He had also served as a lieutenant in the trenches during the war, earning himself an Iron Cross, an impressive achievement, and he was a firm believer in the advancement of German power. Bruning was also a Catholic in a Protestant-majority state, so despite being in the Catholic-dominated Zentrum party, he swung hard to the right to prove his nationalist bona fides to any who might question his patriotism. Again, not that that would help him much in his dealings with the far right. He had been approached in December 1929 by Schleicher about heading an appointed government, a presidential government, as it were, but had expressed doubts. He clearly saw that if Hindenburg governed by dissolving the Reichstag in the event it resisted his will, that he would merely trigger round after round of elections that could only be solved by dissolving the democracy itself. To which Schleicher responded with something to the effect of, Nah, man, it'll be fine. Whatever his reservations, Bruning accepted the appointment by Hindenburg to the chancellorship, and he got down to work. That work, in this case, was a round of austerity and budget cuts on the welfare state that immediately sent the Reichstag into a tizzy. A lot of representatives weren't too happy about being cut out of Bruning's selection, and the SPD was still the largest single party, so resistance to the cuts was high. But Bruning's government was new in the realm of Weimar politics up to that point. He owed nothing to any constituency, and his cabinet was manned by technocrats focused on policy, not politics. And their policy was to stifle inflation. This is where the ghost of 1923 and the Ruhr occupation came back to haunt Germany. When faced with a shrinking economy, the instinct of the politicians was not to abandon the shackles of the gold standard and inflate the money supply, but rather to double down on deflation. The pain of hyperinflation was such that even a brush with currency devaluation was unacceptable. On July 16, 1930, Bruning presented his austerity budget before the Reichstag. It triggered a firestorm of indignation from both the left and the far right. The budget was quickly voted down. The conservatives then turned to President Hindenburg to override the Reichstag and issue the budget by decree, which Hindenburg did. The SPD put forward a motion to withdraw that decree, and doing so would dissolve the Reichstag and trigger new elections. The new vote on that was held days later on the 18th, and the Reichstag was a scene of complete chaos as the representatives yelled at and cajoled each other, everyone being aware of the constitutional crisis being played out. The vote was tight, and even the Nazis' meager 12 votes appeared to be critical. There was an amusing scene where Hermann Goering was forced to call up the house phone of Joseph Goebbels' latest mistress, as while the propaganda chief was a sitting member of the Reichstag, he was MIA on account of being technically wanted on charges of inciting violence. He faced the conundrum of losing his immunity to prosecution if the Reichstag was dissolved. After being shamed by Goering, Goebbels packed into his car and his driver blazed through downtown Berlin, going around 60 miles an hour, finally reaching the Reichstag building with five minutes left to vote. 
dramatic though it was, it didn't actually matter. The vote was 236 to 221 against Hindenburg's decrees, and the Reichstag dissolved. The KPD members started belting out the International Halle, Goebbels sneaked out the back door with Goering, and elections were set for September 14th. The momentary collapse of the Bruning government appeared to not matter in the short term. With the Reichstag dissolved and therefore out of the way, Hindenburg used his presidential powers to keep Bruning and his cabinet right where they were and issued the budget by decree once again. Until after the future elections, the government would be functioning with no oversight. The Schleicher formula of governance had been put into effect. The results were devastating. On July 26th, yet another round of budget cuts and tax increases were imposed by Bruning, and it became clear that the policy of the government was to crash the economy into the ground so that it could be rebuilt from scratch. As a result, the Depression only intensified in Germany, and Bruning would gain the moniker the Hunger Chancellor. In the back half of the year, an additional 2 million Germans would join the unemployment rolls, and with the welfare cuts, there would be little relief waiting for them. The unemployment rate would increase in Germany from 13% in 1929 to 22% in 1930 to a staggering 33% in 1931. And at the risk of getting ahead of myself, this is all before the Austrian banking crisis would get going in 1931, which of course spread to Germany and caused a collapse in the financial sector there, causing unemployment to go from staggering to a cataclysmic 44% in 1932. The social cost of this collapse is hard for me to describe to you verbally on this podcast. I can't take away your food, your shelter, or your dignity. And I can't do it for years on end, with there being many cases where people couldn't find work for up to five years. And that's not five years with gaps where, you know, despair leads someone to give up for a time. It's five years of constant looking and applying. Young men were especially hit hard as more established workers had a higher likelihood of being protected by their unions or having a network of friends looking out for them. Not to say that older workers were inculcated, far from it, but again, younger workers were especially hard hit. Hamburg, for example, saw fully half of its 20 to 25-year-old men listed as unemployed. They were angry, they were desperate, Very quickly, it became apparent that only the parties on either extreme of the political spectrum were willing to offer the drastic action they had come to understand as a necessity, and that meant the Nazis on the right and the KPD on the left. The Depression was also especially hard on women as well. With the men unemployed, they had to turn to their homemaker skills to, at best, earn an irregular income. Housekeeping for families who still had a shred of money to spare was often the only earnings a poor family would see for months or even years. And I mentioned last season that this type of work had fallen away during the 20s on account of it being too expensive for most. Which was still true, but during the Depression, women started doing that work for a pittance. Between 1929 and 1933, Germany's industrial production would fall by 50%, a second-worst showing in the world, only behind the United States is 60%. With industry collapsing, there were suddenly entire factories being shut down. Bankrupt firms sold their assets of equipment off at fire sale prices, and interestingly enough, one of the main buyers was the Soviet Union, which was getting its five-year plan of rapid industrialization off the ground around this time. Because my coverage on Germany from last season was some time ago, I just want to reemphasize the misery that the nation had endured for the past two decades. 
World War I was a time of not just violence, but intense starvation and disillusion with the state people had known for two generations. The immediate post-war years did not alleviate conditions and led to civil war. It continued privation, and the embarrassment of being treated as a prisoner among nations left a scar. Then there was hyperinflation and still more years of misery. At best, three years of bettering fortunes in the back half of the 20s were quickly reversed as once again foreigners began making demands, just in time for an economic collapse to put the hyperinflation era to shame. All the while, the very government people lived under was wildly unpopular, and the people were divided against each other. On the left, there was the proletariat represented by the establishment SPD and the far rowdier KPD. Because of the SPD's actions during the 1918 to 1919 revolution and their desertion of the communists every step of the way thereafter, the two groups were utterly, utterly irreconcilable. While the SPD was far larger at first, it shared the blame of Weimar's failures and would suffer in favor of the KPD as people grew desperate. Some have conjectured that a united front between them might have saved Germany, but that is fantastical thinking given their mutual history. A bit further along the political spectrum, the center's years of triumph in the late 20s were firmly dashed by the Depression, and more than anywhere else, the people began to turn from them. The well-to-do, the middle class, the businessmen, the bourgeois, they weren't just driven by desperation of losing their social standing. They looked on as the proletariat entered an abyss even deeper than they suffered from, and in turn, they feared the coming of a revolution. Make no mistake, their turn ever more rightward was born not just out of immediate concerns, but concerns that one day they would have to share their material wealth with others. And increasingly, it was apparent that the center just wouldn't do. They were too compromising and unwilling to make the hard choices that the bourgeois now believed was necessary. And that left the far right. Again, the Nazis in the first half of 1930 were just a small part of it. After all, in 1928, they had only gained 2.5% of the national vote. The far larger German National People's Party, the DNVP, under Alfred Hugenberg, was considered the dominant force on that wing. But Hugenberg was hardly a dynamic figure. He was a businessman, gaining prominence within the Krupp Metalworks conglomerate, and then using his wealth from that to buy up newspaper chains to spread his nationalistic rhetoric. And he would use his influence to undermine the government during the crisis of the Depression. But, bad for him, it turned out that Hitler and the Nazis were a far more dynamic force than his nationalist DMVP party, and it was they who bluntly promised a violent settling of scores that nationalists and the bourgeois craved. And that is where I will be picking up next week, as I take a little bit of time to cover what the Nazis were up to in 1930 and how they exploited the declining conditions in Germany to begin advancing from a micro-party to the force that would put the final nails in the coffin of German democracy. As it turned out, Brüning and Hindenburg's decision to dissolve the Reichstag in July 1930 opened a Pandora's box that they simply could not control. The entire conservative clique around Hindenburg had figured that the German people would rally around Brüning out of patriotism and loyalty personally to Hindenburg, who was still a wildly popular figure. Half the point of making the Depression worse was to drive the people into accepting an authoritarian figure that would disband the democracy and save them by decree. This would prove to be a stupid miscalculation, 
as when people saw their democracy get chucked to the curb by the establishment, which then proceeded to make their lives go from bad to worse, they simply turned to outside parties. The September 1930 elections would not ultimately sweep the Nazis to power, but it would awaken the conservatives to the fact that there were now players on the board they had not counted on when starting their bid to bring down Weimar. Join me next week as I dive deeper into the abyss, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.